You're listening to Office Hours, a series of curious conversations with Belfer Center experts. I sat down with Michael Solmeyer, formerly Director for Plans and Operations for Cyber Policy in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. He is now the Director of the Cybersecurity Project at the Belfer Center. Did you play video games growing up? Even worse, I didn't have friends growing up. Why so is that? I built computers. Oh, and wow. So that was how I first got into this, was I think it must have been in seventh or eighth grade, I started going to swap meets and buying parts. What compelled you to build a computer? Was that? Uh, when I was much younger, I remember that we had a, an old first generation PC yeah. in the house. And I was able, for some reason, to learn how to operate in DOS, one of the original text-based operating systems. Not the earliest, but, but before there was Windows, there was DOS. And for some reason, I was able to operate in that environment. And my parents, when I was six or seven, I was saw able to flourishing. do that. And they saw me flourishing. So they encouraged that. And I took off from there. Did you prefer computer games to regular video games? Were you more of a Duke Nukem type guy, or were you a Mario Kart guy, or shooter, or RPG? What was... Well, I was actually very into basketball at the time. Oh, really? Playing it. I was very tall when uh, for my age at that point. So, um, I, when people ask me about sports, I, I always like to remind them that I was, in fact, the MVP of the basketball team, uh, albeit in fourth grade. <laughs> That's all right. But, uh, but true enough. So, I actually was not playing video games that much. I was oh, interesting. actually doing some sports. <laughs> uh, but growing up in Southern California... Uh, I was actually, uh, I know it'll come as a shock, I was not doing a lot of surfing uh, my way through elementary school, but uh, between basketball and some other team sports and uh, computers, that's how I kept busy. Interesting. So cybersecurity, just the word cybersecurity is, it's got this, it's got this sort of sex appeal to it. It's got this mysteriousness to it. Cybersecurity uh, in Washington is sort of transformed or or revolutionized the image of sort of computer nerd and techie. Uh, it's made them a little bit more eligible, say. You know, if you want to date, you should, you should become a cybersecurity expert. Do you think that it, it, is, it has done that? Um, well, uh, given that I can't figure out how lucky uh, I've, I've been to uh, meet my, my current girlfriend, okay. I must, it must be because <laughs> I'm a cybersecurity person. It's probably person. nothing to do with your personality. Uh, uh, no, it couldn't. It's, my personality is a deterrent <laughs> most often. But I, I do think that the uh, sort of post-9-11 securitization of that discourse in Washington around public policy, um, that was very much the case. Uh, after uh, more became known about cybersecurity uh, from researchers providing stories, from journalists providing accounts of different kinds of cyber attacks, yeah. uh, Estonia in 07, uh, reporting uh, done by David Sanger about some activities in Iran, uh, it did become a, a field of security policy. Right. Uh, and that's still very new. But I think around Washington, yeah, it probably has... I, Nice to hear sex appeal applied to it. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know that I've ever that gets me going. Uh, done that, but uh, <laughs> I, I think there has been a lot more of that recently. Uh, and uh, oh, totally lost my train of thought. Because um, it is so sexy. Yeah, that's right. That it, it is distracting. What would be uh, a cyber pearl harbor? 
or a cyber Armageddon? What would that look like? Uh, very difficult for, for me to spell it out in a equally dramatic way. Uh, it's not like the movie Armageddon or something like that. Uh, for me, I, my belief is that the ability to generate the kind of very persistent effects, not persistent presence on a, on a, on a network. So if, if you and I are trying to hack in somewhere and we steal someone's password and credentials, and we're able to gain access. We can hold that access for a while. That's the so-called advanced persistent threat. Just the bad guy stays there. But to blow something up, to make physical effects occur yeah. through cyberspace, not impossible. We've seen more and more research showing how that's possible. But to make those effects lasting so that there's real consequences right. beyond just the immediate okay, that portion of that system that is connected to the power grid went down versus taking out power to the country for months at a time through purely a cyber attack, that, that is not a, an activity that's, uh, that a lone hobbyist is going to be able to it's pull It's not off. very likely. I mean, is that because something like that happened in Ukraine recently, right? Or, Correct. There uh, was an incident uh, December 23 and, and around those dates where uh, a cyber operation disabled part of uh, the Ukrainian power grid for yeah. a portion of time. So and it I could think happen. they had it up and running, though, in six or seven hours. Now, good researcher that we actually brought up here to give a talk about this topic, uh, a guy named Rob Lee, you know, talks about how the ability to bring the power back up in only six or seven hours had in part to do with the fact that the Ukrainian grid was not nearly that sophisticated right. and therefore not nearly that vulnerable. Right. So if you attacked a much more vulnerable and more sophisticated, more digital type of grid, maybe you have more persistent effects. Oh, so that's an irony, right? So the better it is, actually, the worse the effect would be. Well, better, but at least right. more convenient or, or networked, you could find yourself in a worse off situation from a security standpoint. What sort of things, what sort of steps can you take to uh, hide your tracks or just protect yourself from, from you know, identity fraud and things like that? Uh, so it's a great question. In large part, I think the social media companies are becoming a lot more responsive to the user base that says, look, at least give me the option to control my privacy. At least don't play hide the Easter egg with the privacy settings. And please don't change it every single other week there's an update. Yeah. So that I have to create a how-to guide to figure out how to right. just persist with my privacy settings. Yeah. Uh, so I think that the, the social media community, has, uh, that that's working a lot, a lot better. If you don't want your Facebook information out there in the wild, easily searchable, it doesn't have to be. And that doesn't require an expert to do that. Are there other sorts of steps you can take in terms of, if you're worried about somebody hacking into your yeah. Gmail, say for instance, like are there, are there easy steps that, that, that you take to protect yourself or that you'd suggest to people that are, take you know, a couple minutes just to increase the I mean, protection? The clear disclaimer is you know, everyone you know, at, at their own risk, but for me, you know, two-factor authentication is something that is uh, often free yeah. and does not solve everything, but makes life a lot harder for a crook or a thief. So authentication, what is authentication? Everybody talking about encryption. This is authentication. Authenticate, how do I know you are you? Mm. The most popular method of authentication is the password. Something you know, 
you sign up for the account, you create a password, you type the password again. Okay, that is how the system authenticates you are you. Unfortunately, social security numbers are still used as an authentication uh, tool. Not, not great. We've right. got to move away from, from doing that. But in addition to authentication by something you know, a password, there's something you have or something you are. So something you are, a fingerprint, oh. retinal scan, something like that. But we can't do that on our laptops, right? So what's it? Right, but the new iPhone oh, has right. a fingerprint right, to open up the display, unlock screen. So the technology is there. Yeah. Uh, if people want to enable these things or not, completely up to them. Another you know, factor of authentication is the something you have. So with Gmail, you can set up, and Facebook, other services offer this, not just Gmail. You can set up a system where if you're logging in from a new phone or a new computer, you're at the Apple store and you want to check your email, system says, I got your password, but this is, this is different. You've not logged in here before. Right. You have to, we're now going to send you a text message. And there's going to be a, a code in that text message. You have to type that in. Type that in quickly, and you can only type this in once. And this will verify for us that you really are you. Because the likelihood that someone walked off with your password and your phone, that is less likely. Not, not impossible, but less likely. So that's one common way, marrying your password with another form of authentication for information that you deem critical. Should we be concerned about this? I mean, two-factor authorization is another thing to do. Uh, are people's identities getting started? Are their Gmails getting hacked all the time? Is that something that is a, should be a real concern of ours? Well, uh, should it, is it a real concern? Should it be? It, it's unfortunate that it is. You know, I would submit that um, I think most people more often are, are more vulnerable than they would otherwise think. Um, if you accidentally click on a link, for example, that takes you to a website that looks like bankofamerica.com, but is actually bankofmerica.com and is operated by a crook and looks visually like bankofamerica.com, but you, what actually is in the URL is bankofmerica.com, and you provide your password willingly to log into your bank account. Be nice if there was a second factor yeah. on that, just in case yeah. you make a mistake. Right. So uh, there's something called the Internet of Things. Okay, what is that? Because it kind of sounds to me like a coloring book for kids. Mm. What is that? Uh, adult coloring is big these days. Is it? So I mean, don't dock it till you. Don't I've never been able to stay it. within the. The lines have always been very difficult for me. Is that like spiritually, like <laughs> emotionally, spiritually? Maybe? No, the coloring books. Oh, as a physically, kid, I was just a little bit, oh, you know, I would get a little excited. So, so, so other areas. Go beyond the boundaries. Social well. psychology. Oh, who knows? Um, I, the Internet of Things was originally, I think, a concept, if I've got my, my history right, that Cisco started to describe as a line of business about connecting different devices that historically weren't connected to a network. But now it has the manifestation of thinking about connecting your refrigerator, giving your refrigerator an internet protocol address, an IP address, and allowing your refrigerator to connect to your home router. Light bulbs connected to your network so that with an app you could control the lighting. In but here. it's you, still you controlling them. They're not. Yeah, until it doesn't work own. quite the way you want. Right. Right? I and mean, this is the risk. Okay. Is that when we think about innovation, 
we tend to think of security as a dependent variable. I want to increase convenience, what does that do to security? As opposed to, I need security. What does that do to cost? What does that do to convenience? What does that do to schedule? We think about it in the former way. Now, sadly, we're still at that point of saying, let's just push the, the new product, the new upgrade out there. Now, I'm, I'm generalizing this. I'm not trying to say that all companies all the time don't think about security. More and more of them do more and more often yeah. think about security. The trajectory is better than it was. However, you can also imagine and empathize with the pressure that startups are under to bring new products to market. And the security testing takes time, takes resources, and it's hard to discern clear return on investment in the short term. So the worry becomes with the Internet of Things, we all start connecting everything in our houses, right. but they become the easiest attack vectors. Right. Because although we've done two-factor authentication now on our phones, we're trying to do encrypted emails for yeah. our desktops, we now introduce devices that are the easy way into the castle. So from a cybersecurity perspective, how much should we fear China? Well, it is at one level um, helpful to think in terms of the whodunit. Uh, and I, I understand why uh, often people and, and commentators are inclined to really focus on, on the whodunit. In my mind, reality of international politics today is that the international system is just a really, really complex place. We don't have a, a cyber problem only. We have relationships around the world that have to be managed. Uh, this is something you know, my friend Dmitry Alperovich likes to talk about. You don't have a cyber problem with China. You have a lot of problems with China. And you have a lot of opportunities with China, a lot of potential for cooperation and benefit with China as well. All of it has to be managed. The difficulty is certain communities really focus on the cyber issue and then demand action as if there were no other political, economic, trade stakes involved. And what we're seeing, I think, is government better incorporate the cyber concerns across a range of actors and a range of countries and international institutions into the mainline issues that are negotiated as the stuff of international diplomacy and politics. So, you know, is there a reason to fear you know, China? I mean, th there's a reason we should, both countries should try to stay out of a conflict. I mean, we're, we're pretty fearsome too. But no one benefits from an, from an all-out conflict in that way. But would cyberspace be involved? Sure. Are there going to be differences in cyberspace between the two countries? Sure. But I also believe there are areas for cooperation to promote stability. We just have to treat it like a mainline issue and not this you know, kid in the corner that maybe the ultra-low-level people will deal with on a next Sunday. It sounds like we don't even really know what they can do. Uh, you know, a year ago, of course, in 2015, there was the big data breach at the Office of Personnel Management of 22 million uh, federal employees and their personal information was compromised. And in December, it sounds like the, the, the Chinese arrested uh, a, group of, a group of hackers saying that they were responsible for, for that hack. But do we really even know if those hackers were part of the government or if it's just China being better about managing its own 
you know, country and managing its uh, you know, the cyber, you know, hacking within its boundaries. Um, does that present complications for us? Uh, complications? Sure. Uh, what specifically different parts of our government know and to what extent, you know, we won't, we won't talk about, but, uh, but sure, these are kinds of complicating standards, factors that uh, are at issue, but it is knowable. Uh, it's, it's not something that's impossible. You may not be able to figure it out in any given situation, but it's, it's not impossible to figure out. Um, you know, people for a long time have talked about the challenge of attribution in cyberspace, that it is possible to maintain such anonymity that you can get away with anything. So hack away. And I think what you've seen over the last several years are two big developments to counter that. One is the rise of private sector companies who publish reports outing and exposing foreign hackers. Now, whether they name them or not is a separate issue, but the anonymity is blown. Right? The second thing you see is, like today, this morning, uh, the Justice Department unsealed an indictment against several Iranian hackers, naming them by name, describing what they did, when they did it, and demonstrating that the United States government is very well aware of who was doing what. So the degree of anonymity that any individual or representative of a government can have right now on the internet, that's decreased over time. Do we hack? Does the United States hack? Uh, well, you know, there's a lot of competing views and opinions on that. But what I, only thing I will say about it is that um, I think the government has a responsibility to uh, pursue its interests and the interests of the nation and defend the nation uh, from uh, destructive activity, whether that's active terrorism or, or other. Um, at, at some point, we want our government to take advantage of all the tools possible to protect the country and to do the right thing within reason. I, I am not one of these guys who says unleash the full force of anything. Uh, this is governed by a constitution. No right. one is above the law. But within reason, I think we want our government yeah. to do the things that are, are possible to increase the chance of protecting us. So if that means that governments operate on the internet, we shouldn't be surprised by that. Do we know the capabilities of, say, ISIS or North Korea, or, or you know, d does ISIS have uh, cyber terrorism capabilities? Well, so do, do we know or is it known? Uh, it, it is knowable, uh, and depends on, you know, on what level of specificity, but you know, these, the questions you ask are knowable. Um, I, I think what we've seen publicly are instances where um, terrorists abuse the internet for propaganda purposes and recruitment purposes. Uh, there are stories out there about even using some uh, applications for command and control of different kinds of activities, but um, whether or not you know, any one particular group or set of actors has the capability to perpetrate a physically destructive act of terrorism, something I, I probably won't get into, but we should be worried about that, not because that that's going to happen tomorrow. I really hope it, uh, obviously, I hope it does not. Um, the capability to do that is not um, very, very easy, but it's also not that hard. 
right? It's, it's somewhere in between. The difference is that very hard to deter yeah. a non-state actor, terrorist organization, whereas general deterrence may be operating a little more between nation states from conducting destructive attacks. So I worry that the terrorist organizations, they have the intent, yeah. the desire to probably, I don't, I don't have that kind of information in front of me anymore, they probably have the desire to pull off something spectacular, just by logic, I infer it. Uh, so you worry about one day if they ever get the capability to do so. Do you know where the United States stacks up in the world? Are we still number one? Are we on top in terms of cyber defense and cyber security? If any one state is uh, so supreme on offense, they better also take a good hard look and figure out if they're also the most vulnerable state out there as well. So. I hope absolutely that we continue to invest in offensive capabilities. I also hope that we don't get enamored with that too much. And we really also make sure we're taking care of business on the defense side as well. But because all this stuff is so mysterious and it's not like, you know, you can see physical bases with satellite photos, you don't really know, do we, we don't really know what the capabilities of others are unless they actually engage in an, in an attack or an intrusion of some sort, right? Um, that is one way to know. I would submit that there are probably other ways. These are knowable yeah. questions. Whether or not in any given time any one government is, you know, knows about what any other government is able to do, that's yeah. more a, an intelligence type question. Yeah. We could just ask them. Maybe could. They, could you? Sometimes they like to tell you. <laughs> you? Um, when they've never told me, but they might tell you. Might They're tell much me. better at this than I am. Got a wonderful smile, so yes. I'm sure they would. I have a face for radio, by <laughs> contrast, which is a real problem for a lot of them. No, it's not. Is there anything that really just frustrates you about how little the American public knows about cybersecurity? Uh, the American public is, I think, growing more and more aware of the issues. So this is, as you said earlier, right, I mean, this was kind of techno-geek stuff for a long time. I mean, this is not how you like, went to the beach with a surfboard and yeah. started talking about zero-day exploits. That didn't work so well. So it's, it's a relatively recent development where you're having public conversations. I mean, when I go to weddings now, People want uh, harass me Are about Apple FBI. To you, which since when <laughs> does anyone want to talk to me to begin with? Let alone about this field. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, what I do think is noteworthy. This another friend of mine, Jothy Rosenberg, down at uh, Draper Labs, had this very good insight. I thought, which was that when a loved one gets sick. Your sort of first instinct these days, you go to WebMD or some website that you trust and you try to learn about it, to empathize, but also to understand with a little more detail what's at stake. Uh, you, what you often don't do is then enroll in medical school to perform the actual operation yourself. Why aren't people going to the WebMD equivalent about cyber, and about intrusions and cyber attacks? There's this belief that you have to learn to code or you can't be involved in this or this is too hard. We need to get to a, a point of when people have a problem or a series of questions or something goes wrong, there's a trusted corpus so just not of information. Information about cyber is just not accessible or people aren't willing to, to, to it's, look it's things both. up. I, it's both. It's sort of chicken and the egg. I mean, if you build it, they will come. Yeah. But there are sources out there right now. Yeah. 
which people don't always go to to engage with, which is a nice segue to the work we are trying to undertake here at the Belfer Center yeah. uh, in, in some part to provide that kind of trusted, um, smart, accessible analysis of issues about conflict in cyberspace. The Belfer Center is trying to become the WebMD of, of cybersecurity. Uh, in, in part. I mean, we're not a computer science department, yes. and we're not going to try to have that kind of a function, but the dream would be to be able to work with computer scientists who have that expertise, and it really is special expertise that needs to be respected and appreciated, but to incorporate that, to welcome that uh, into the work that we're trying to do. One question that I, I wonder is, is in 25 years, is anyone ever going to be able to run for president? Because are all, can we just expect all those Facebook photos, Tinder messages, text messages, Snapchats, should we just expect that stuff to come to light? Never heard of Tinder. <laughs> uh, what I do think is that um, at some point, um, everybody will be vulnerable, and so it'll be mutual assured destruction. Okay. So there's going to be a period of time before that where some people are vulnerable and can be exploited as a result, and that's going to be very difficult. And I fear will uh, deprive uh, public service and, and the nation of good people who otherwise, you know, perfectly qualified to serve, but for some, you know, Sigmachi frat party photo from you know two decades ago or something. We wouldn't want that. But at a, I think at a certain point it'll evolve where everybody, if you dig hard enough, you'll find something. So, uh, you know, will that cancel each other out? Perhaps. So party on. Your worth. No. Right. <laughs> um, how easy is it to hack something? Because, like, I read these reports. There's a there's a 16 year old British kid that was arrested for hacking John Brennan, the director of the CIA's personal email account. There was a British teenager a couple years ago who was arrested for um, hacking CIA. Uh, can anyone hack? Is it super easy? Uh, it all depends what you mean by, by hack. I hate to you know, bring out my inner law student here, but if you mean to socially engineer your way into getting access to someone's data, sure, that's not hard. I believe in that the former situation you were describing, you know, an individual called an internet service provider and uh, made the recipient of the call believe through some facts and through some creative storytelling that they were, in fact, someone they were not. That happens all the time, usually to no real malicious end, but, but often. So that's very easy. You know, it, is it easy to uh, achieve unauthorized access to any computer? Sure. Now, any specific computer? A little harder. Create destructive effects from that access? Even not so easy. Not impossible. I mean, this is not like bolt from the blue type of stuff anymore. It's something you really do have to think about if you're in the national security business. But it's, it's not that basic that any of us just walking around with an iPhone and a, a ponytail and a dream can <laughs> instantly, you know, start holding critical infrastructure at risk. So, Michael, you don't like the word, you don't like the word cyber attack. Why not? Yeah, I, I do frown on that. Uh, I, I think in part because it's a little misleading and has the potential at least to be misleading about what's actually going on. It's, it's a nice characterization 
if premised on the right kinds of, of facts. But what I would encourage people to do is think about more description and understanding of what happened before characterizing something as an attack. Attack, to me, pr presumes a knowledge of the intent. But it's very difficult to know um, someone's intent when you're just looking at logs of internet activity or traffic within a network. So, so what would you suggest instead? Well, you know, I tend to prefer thinking in terms of is it a compromise of confidentiality, integrity, or availability? That's a three-part framework on information uh, security that's been around since the 70s, tried and trusted, and I think still largely valid. That's a way to describe the incident. Then if you want to characterize that as an attack, you can. Depends on where you are, what business you're in, and if you want to use that kind of word. But I'd like to make sure there's that descriptive part, more based on the factual understanding of what happened before characterizing it as such. Michael, thank you so much again. Pleasure uh -huh. Office Hours was produced by the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. 